this evening we are going to finish the book of Philippians in the last three verses. Philippians 4, chapter, uh, Philippians 4 verse 21 to 23. And there's nothing new in the end of this passage. Quite similarly to a lot of what we've read, a lot of it follows the same ideas, the same principles. And really what I want to do tonight is to pull those out and to kind of re-go over to make sure that we've pulled out really one of the most important things that Paul wants us to know from the book of Philippians. So we'll read from verses 21 to 23 of chapter 4. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are, and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Shall we pray? The Lord and our God, would you just speak to each and every one of us this evening? Lord, would you challenge us? Would you rebuke us? Would you correct us where we need it? In your name we pray. Amen. I can't help but be blown away by the consistency in the book of Philippians in this letter. And what amazes me, as we've just sung, is something of the centrality of Christ throughout the entire letter that we see here. And that's really how Paul opens the letter in chapter 1 verse 2 and how he finishes the letter here. He puts Jesus at the centre of the book as he closes. Do you know there's something so glorious about this letter? There is something so challenging about this letter, yet there is something so beautifully simple about this letter. Where are we? Paul is a man in prison. He loves his brothers and sisters in Philippi. We know that there's an argument between two ladies in the church that is causing disruption. What it was, we don't know, but Paul cares for the church, so this makes him sad. The Philippians care for Paul, so they send one of their men, Epaphroditus, to take a gift, a financial gift, and to comfort Paul. And Paul, throughout this letter, is constantly encouraging them, not reflecting on his own situation, but constantly encouraging them, challenging them, putting them before himself. And he encourages them, if I plead with them, to put Jesus at the centre, to focus on Christ above all else. In these short verses, there are three things that, that are not new, three things that we have covered fairly extensively within this letter, but I think are helpful for us to come to this evening. The first point in that is the fellowship of God's people that we find in verses 21 and the first half of verse 22. To read it again, greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings. Greet, greetings, greetings three times in the short verse and a half that we have here. But something of this greeting isn't just to say hello, isn't just to shake hands. Thank you. Um, but it is something more than that. It is something that is sent with real care. It is something that shows concern for another. And that's what he's saying. You know, we greet you, you greet us, we all greet each other. Paul showing something of his love for his brothers and sisters here. But, but what captures me in this is the use of the word all. And I think there is something so important in this. Other translations will use the words everyone or everybody. But the idea that this is this inclusive group of those that are part of the body of Christ. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. All people. Everyone without 
exception. We look back to to chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full uh, full accord and of one mind. There's no idea of favoritism here. There's no idea of one being above the other. But actually, there is this united church. Just as we here are something of the visible church, here in Hamilton, we are also part of the wider global invisible church. Yes, we have friends. We have those that that God puts on our hearts to show special care for. And that's important. And that's never wrong. But it only becomes wrong if we neglect other people. What matters in all of this is the centrality of Jesus. What matters is that we have a desire to unite together, to glorify God, to follow his ways. And it tells us that everybody who is accepted by God must be accepted within their local church. No matter what they look like, no matter how they come in here, no matter their backgrounds, their stories. Why? Because we are his body on earth. Do you know, I frequently quote eloquent and well-to-do theologians who continued on that trend to quote David from this week. We were having this conversation and he said something I thought was really helpful, but he said we often think of the visible church and not the invisible church. And I found that really helpful just as, as I was pondering that this week. But we often think of church as this, that this is church, this is our church. This is where our focus is. These are the fellow believers that we see most frequently. The people that we spend most, excuse me, that we spend most time with. I love the words of the Baptist Confession of 1689. It says this, the Catholic or universal church, which with respect to the internal work of the spirit and truth of grace may be called invisible consists of a whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. The body of Christ is made up of those that are here right now, those that have been before us, and those that will come. The body of Christ incorporates all that believe. Great words. Great words, but one that has real, real challenge. What comes with that? If anybody is accepted by Christ, we too must accept them. We too must greet them. We too must welcome them. And it's hard because we want people like us. We like people like us. We like people of the same social standings. We like people that have similar levels of jobs. We like people that are like us. We get a little bit afraid and a little bit touchy of people in church that aren't like us. And there is a massive challenge for us in here. Why? Because we are to greet all without exception. Jesus, the main man, the example of the woman that touched his garment from Mark 5. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians. And had spent all that she had. And was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard reports about Jesus. And came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus 
perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowds pressing around you, yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Busyness. Crowds, big groups of people. Many, many people wanting Jesus' attention, yet Jesus was aware of this woman's individual needs. Paul, throughout this letter, is more concerned with others than he is of himself. He wants to see Jesus put first. And what does Jesus do? But Jesus puts this woman that is suffering, this woman that is in hardship and is in difficulty, he stops everything. He stops everything within amongst this crowd for this woman. How frequently does Jesus do that? And I think this is a challenge for a church of our size. Because it's easy for us to think somebody else will chat to them. Because it's easy for us to think somebody else will take care of that. It is difficult for us because we don't see everybody all the time. Because sometimes, do you know, I once, in fact, my mum at our last church got asked, um, are you new here? And she's been in the church 13 years. Because she went to a different service and uh, later on in the day and, and people didn't recognise her. And that's something that comes with this. But the challenge to us is how do we care for one another? We must never lose sight of the fact that our God is a God who is relational, who is a God that knows us more intimately than we know ourselves. We serve a God who wants to be in constant communication with us and he wants us to be a people that care like he cares for us. Fellowship. Taking time for one another. Looking out for those that are less fortunate than ourselves. Something of the challenge and the greeting that comes here. Secondly, I want to look at the joy of God's people. And I love this sentence, the second half of verse 22. Especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Do you know, the greatest joy for us is to see other people come to faith. How unbelievable is it when there's somebody that we prayed for for long periods of time and they just give in to the weight of the gospel. They embrace it in all its fullness. That's something of why we love baptisms and we love testimonies so much. Because we love to hear stories of Jesus breaking through into people's lives. How good is it to see and to hear the proclamations of life's transformed. Jesus gives us two parables of salvation, the lost sheep and the lost coin. And they both express joy. They both give us complete joy. Philippi, a Roman colony. The citizens were Roman. So something of Caesar's household would have been meaningful to them. The household of Caesar would have meant more than his family. But it would have meant everybody that worked there. Because as far as we know, there isn't any of Caesar's family immediate family becoming Christians but it includes their employees their slaves their freemen everybody that was there and Paul knew many of them from his imprisonment Caesar was an interesting man he murdered his way to the throne he was characterised by violence he was characterised by his cruelty and his extravagance He wasn't that well of a liked man. 
He blamed things upon the Christians. And he killed Christians. Some torn apart, fed to the dogs. Others, he would put in wax and he would stand them in his garden and light them like candles in his garden. Caesar hated Christians. He absolutely detested Christians. Yet those in his very own household were coming to faith in Jesus. How incredible is that? They're in the most volatile, they're in the most horrendous and awful places to be a Christian. We are seeing people giving their lives to Jesus. In chapter 1 verse 13, we saw something of the guards that Paul had led to Christ. Why does he include this? Why does he say especially these people? Because he's so delighted that those that are in the pagan emperor's household are coming into the kingdom of Christ. It's incredible that the gospel penetrated through that government, that it penetrated through that household. And it began to move. How we pray that God would move like that amongst our government. How we pray that God would penetrate the hearts like he penetrated the hearts of those in the house of Caesar. Lots of wealthy people in Rome. Lots of wealthy people, lots of busy people. But yet they were surrounded by humble Christians. Just going about their work. Shining their lights for Jesus. Doing what they do to the glory of God. He's saying we greet those especially in the difficult places. Those in this pagan household. And I just want to take a minute to reflect on that. This idea of the gospel penetrating difficult situations. It's a fascinating and pretty accurate image of the journey of Christianity since it began. And what's most fascinating about that is the way that the gospel transcends culture, that it transcends the Mongols, it, trans- it comes through communism, Islam, all of it. And it grows and it grows, and especially post-Reformation, what we see is the gospel explode throughout this earth. What's interesting is you'll notice that Islam is fairly contained. With the exception of Indonesia, Islam doesn't and hasn't ever travelled well. Why? Because it's so culturally based. As its people move, they move. And yes, there are converts, but very, very few. Yet we don't depend upon culture. We depend upon Jesus. How many of those places have been and continue to be persecuted places. Yet the gospel of Christ is still on the move. Jesus is in the business of converting guards, of converting workers in pagan households. And right now he is working throughout this world, transforming people's lives in situations that to us are absolutely unthinkable. I just want to give you a bit of the story of a great 20th century missionary, a man who some of you might know, Charles Marx. A man of a brethren background. He was called by God to go to Algeria. He got married and he said to his wife, you know, we know we're going to Algeria. God's called us, so let's not bother with a honeymoon. Let's just go. Wouldn't advise it, but they did and they just went. And he spent 40 years ministering in North Africa. And he wrote a book, a fascinating book, where he covers the dialogue with Muslims. He would build dialogues and structures, conversations that he would have with people. 
And what he would do is he would go to coffee shops where culture revolves and he would sit and he would chat and he would have these conversations. He would engage people with these things that he had developed. And one day someone came up to him and put a knife to his back and said, say there is only one God and his prophet is Muhammad. And Mar said, you know, I cannot deny my God. You must do whatever you want. The man put his knife down and said, I knew you wouldn't, but I thought I'd try anyway. Do you know, in his first 20 years of ministry in Algeria, not one convert. In 20 years. How we'd look at that and think, what unfruitful ministry. Why are you there? What are you doing? In the next two years, he saw 15 to 20 converts. Each one of them killed by their family. After 22 years of ministry, nothing visible, nothing in front of him, nothing lasting to grow the body. In the next 20 years, he saw maybe 150 people come to the Lord. And he died 20 years ago. And today, the church in Algeria is growing fastest in the areas where he was ministering. In 1982, there was an estimated 200 Christians in Algeria. What a fragile church. What a small church. But it is reckoned that today there are 125,000 Christians in that nation. My maths isn't very good, but that's what? Just less than 40 years. Just less than 40 years from 200 to 125,000. And I suspect in a lot of reports put that number so much higher. But what it tells us is God is at work in difficult places. There's not a lot that's very desirable about being a Christian in Algeria. There's not much attractive about serving a pagan emperor and being a Christian within his household. There's no attraction of persecution. There's no desire to put a target on our backs. But as Jesus tells us in John 6, 44, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Lord is at work drawing people to himself. God is drawing people to himself around this globe. And it can be a depressing picture in Scotland. Our statistics don't look good. From across the board, our churches in the main aren't growing. We're not seeing a lot of fruit in our churches. But around the world, we see incredible things going on. So what is our response to our brothers and sisters? They were the most keen to greet especially from them they were the ones that wanted most to be in fellowship so eager to greet their fellow believers why because they were full of joy because they understood what they had in Jesus because they knew joy joy is a mark of the church we've covered it extensively in this letter of Paul's joy of the church in Philippi's joy, of the joy that he wants them to have, and the joy that he has from Epaphroditus, and the joy that he has knowing that they're okay, and the joy that he has in seeing these people being converted. I've probably mentioned the word in every sermon in this book. Why? Because Paul puts such an emphasis on it. Because Paul puts such an emphasis on joy. Finally, I'd just like to look at our source. As the people of God. Verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with your spirit. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is the source of all things. For God's people. 
Paul has come full circle. He began with his letter in chapter 1 verse 2 by wishing them grace. And he concludes the letter in exactly the same way. Paul ends his letter by wishing God's grace. By praying God's grace upon its recipients. The resource that we need most as believers. As David challenged us this morning on the hardships and the trials of life. What we need to know most is the grace of our Lord Jesus. And what that entails for each and every one of us. Grace, the unfavoured. The unmerited favour of our God. The grace of our God that is continually so undeservedly at work within us. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 5.2 Do you know I love the image of an African savannah. And there's just this water with nothing else for miles around. And all these animals gather together. Animals of every kind come together. Why for one purpose? But to come, to drink. Some come miles, some stay close, but they all come together. Each animal coming for the same purpose, to get to the source. To get to the source of that water. Is the word of God our savannah? Is the word of God the place that we go as our source? Do we come together weekly in the expectation of knowing something more of the grace of our God? Because when these animals come together and when they drink, that's where they find their sustenance. Just two like us, as we come together, as we gather around the world, that too is where we are sustained. There are lots of different animals that gather. Just like us, there are lots of different people from all walks of life from all different cultures, from all different backgrounds, gathering together because we all make up the body. What is our source? Our source is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the grace of our Lord Jesus. And the good news is that he died for our sins. For all those who believe so that we might know and be part of his eternal purposes. John MacArthur says this, we are not only saved by grace, but we are sustained by grace, we are governed by grace, guided by grace, kept by grace, strengthened by grace, sanctified by grace, and enabled by grace. It is grace and the grace of our God alone which everything else flows. We must be constantly dependent on the grace of our God. Constantly dependent for forgiveness, for comfort, for peace, for joy, for boldness, for instruction. We receive it all from our God through grace. How weak and needy are we? I don't know if you're reminded as much as I am of just your own weakness. And how far short of the glory of God we fall. And you know people let us down. We can't ever put our ultimate faith in each other. Because time and time again, no matter how great a person they are, somebody will let you down. But Jesus will never let you down. The grace of God will never fail us. And the great news that comes with that is no matter how we walk, in here tonight, the invitation of grace is extended to you. Such a glorious fact. This morning, as I said, David spoke to us in sustaining, God sustaining us in hardships. 
God being with us through the difficult. It's the grace of God that gives us peace in those times. What is the theme of this letter? Jesus. Forty times in this small letter is the word Jesus used. Paul describes himself as a servant of Christ. He addresses the Philippians as God's people. He was imprisoned for the purposes, for the cause of Christ. For him to live as Christ. And in death we are ushered into Christ's presence. He told the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner which is worthy of the glory of Christ. How? By having the attitude of Christ. He called them to glory in Christ. He counted everything that was in the past as rubbish. And the riches that are ahead found in Christ. He was saved by faith in Christ. And he eagerly awaits Christ's return. And Paul's sufficiency was found in Christ. The character, the fellowship, the joy, the resources that we have as Christians are all bound in the man, the God-man of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. Everything that matters, everything that's important, it's all about Jesus. Everything we need, everything that satisfies, everything that brings hope, everything that brings grace, everything that is good, everything that helps us and comforts us is found in Jesus. And I was led back to the challenge. Chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in chapter 2, 21, we see the opposite. For they seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. As I pull this book to a close, there are just three lessons that I feel are so important that I've learned from that. That we need to let the Holy Spirit renew our minds through the Word. Constantly. That we constantly need to go back to the Word. If we believe that the Word is important, then we must open the Word. If we are to know victory, if we are to know joy, if we are to overcome the trials, we must know the Word. Secondly, we must guard our hearts and our minds. In 4 verse 8, whatever is true, honourable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's do that. Let's be a people that think about these things. We don't dwell on the sin, we don't dwell on the negative, but we guard our hearts and our minds by focusing on what is good. When unkind and impure thoughts enter our minds, we deal with it instantly. We don't cultivate it. We don't let it establish roots and grow and rob us of our joy. One of the best ways to do this is we fill our minds with scripture. And thirdly, I'm reminded that our joy is not meant to be selfish. Our joy is to be shared. It is our duty as called by Christ to go into this world that Christ may be glorified in us and through us and how great is it to see others come to know the truth and the joy that we know Jesus first, others second ourselves last and the result is joy let's pray
Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you sent your Son into this world for us. We thank you for your grace that is available in abundance to each and every one of us who believes. That you came, that you established your body on earth, that we have the privilege of being a part of. Lord, would we never abuse that? Would we never take that for granted? But Lord, would we count it a privilege to be part of your body? Lord, turn us back to you continuously turn our eyes back upon you Lord we're sorry we're sorry for the times that we get distracted we're sorry for the times when we turn to other things rather than turning to you but God we come before you this evening in awe recognising your greatness recognising all that you did for the church in Philippi all that you did for the man that is Paul and for all that you do for each and every one of us Lord we thank you Amen. Oh,